Sorry I wasn't able to be here earlier in the week. Uh, some of you heard about my uh, interesting travel arrangement uh, hiccups. But I'm here and uh, very pleased uh, to be joining in with the Philosopher's Track uh, again for the second year. Um, welcome to the uh, light comic relief topic at the end of the week where you've all uh, filled your brains with things uh, and they want to put on someone who will show you some pretty pictures. And uh, now hopefully... Um, what I'm going to show you is really a talk that I've done with um, a couple of different student groups at, at sort of university settings uh, where I'm not addressing um, uh, um, specialist uh, audiences, as it were, but a general audience, but trying to do that in such a way that I have um, some nuggets of uh, real sort of philosophical uh, rigour about some of the things that I'm doing, but I'm also trying to cover quite a lot of wide sort of territory. So I'm trying to be introductory and, and simple without being simplistic and give students the idea uh, that actually, gosh, there, there is some sort of depths uh, to be plumbed here uh, and hopefully there'll be uh, some uh, nuggets of the different sort of bits that I'm drawing together that'll be of, of interest uh, to various of you. So is Christianity unscientific? And indeed, why would we worry about this as an issue anyway? Well, this is a new atheist, Sam Harris. And I think this is a fascinating uh, quotation from him. He's talking about uh, James Watson, of course, half the pairing of Watson and Crick, who elucidated the double helix structure of DNA, uh, and Francis Collins. Uh, a Christian uh, scientist in the States. And Sam Harris says this, that James Watson, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, a Nobel laureate, and the original head of the Human Genome Project, recently asserted in an interview that people of African descent appear to be innately less intelligent than white Europeans. A few sentences spoken off the cuff resulted in academic defenestration. It caused quite a stink and got into the, the papers and so on. I believe that a speaking engagement that he was going to be doing in England got cancelled uh, because of these comments. Uh, Sam Harris says this, Watson's opinions on race are disturbing, but his underlying point was not, in principle, unscientific. I've highlighted this term there is at least a possible scientific basis for his views. While Watson's statement was obnoxious, one cannot say that his views are utterly irrational, or that by merely giving voice to them, he's repudiated the scientific worldview, which would obviously be a bad thing, and declared himself immune to its further discoveries. Such a distinction would have to be reserved for Watson's successor at the Human Genome Project, Dr. Francis Collins. Why? Because Collins is a Bible-believing Christian. I mean, good grief. Uh, Collins believes that Jesus actually came back from the dead. You can't have such a person running the National Institute of Health, as he now does in America. This is really worrying to Sam Harris. So you see here, there's, there's this sort of rhetorical attack 
upon Christianity as being unscientific, repudiating the scientific worldview and so on, that basically ranks being a Christian as being um, subpar, as it were, uh, when compared to being a racist. That's the kind of uh, depth of the rhetorical critique here. Well, is Harris right? Hey, this is where, as a philosopher, we get to say, well, that depends on what you mean by. So here are some distinctions. Woohoo! <laughs> what do you mean by science? I'm going to venture where you know, angels fear to tread here, because, of course, this is a very controversial topic within the philosophy of science. Can you even define science? Um, and by contrast, what would it therefore mean for something to be unscientific? And what do you mean by Christianity? Uh, we have to sort of settle some definitions here. Even to point this out is at least to say that the, 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 the sort of neo-atheist Christianity is unscientific critique has a certain sort of wooliness or vagueness about it um, that is worth noting. So, here we go. What is science? Well, of course, just etymologically, uh, it goes back to the Latin scientia, meaning knowledge or a field of knowledge. But today we use science in a much narrower sense. Very few uh, people would naturally speak of theology as a science, as Thomas Aquinas would have done, for example. So we use science in a narrower sense than knowledge, but scientism, as opposed to science, scientism illegitimately uh, ignores this fact and you may have noticed that scientism has actually been on the rise, at least in the sort of popular public uh, debate uh, about God and science and so on. Here's um, Peter Atkins, uh, atheist chemist from the UK, from Oxford Uni. His recent book on being, he says this, uh, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of, requ of requiring reliable knowledge. Uh, or Stephen Hawking, uh, in his recent book, The Grand Design. Um, he's got a wonderful publicist uh, that he made front-page news on both sides of the, the pond, as we call it. Uh, they start their book saying philosophy is dead. Scientists have become the bearers of the torture of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Uh, so this sort of public proclamation of scientism by world-class scientists at leading universities uh, is on the rise. As Professor John Lennox, a Christian philosopher of science also from Oxford, uh, puts it, Hawking's statement about philosophy, philosophy is dead, is itself a philosophical statement. It's not a statement of science, it's a metaphysical statement about science. Therefore, his statement of philosophy is dead contradicts itself, and um, it doesn't get worse than self-contradiction in terms of the philosophical stakes. So this is a classic example of logical incoherence. And, and you know, students are, are just imbibed with this kind of scientific approach to knowledge. I find it amongst the A-level students that I do school conferences with. They have just never met a critique of that sort of hardline scientism. I would also say, and here again I venture into controversial territory, beware of methodological naturalism. Uh, it was Paul de Vere who distinguished between methodological naturalism as a, a disciplinary method or approach that's neutral concerning God's existence or non-existence 
and metaphysical naturalism as the, the kind of actual worldview of naturalism that does deny the existence of a god. Um, he states the natural sciences are committed to the systematic analysis of matter and energy within the context of methodological naturalism. That's just what science is. Or um, Nancy Murphy says science qua science seeks naturalistic explanations. If you attribute characteristics of, say, living things to a creative intelligence, by definition you're stepping outside of science into some other subject. Some other subject that's probably less well thought of as a purveyor of knowledge, given the pervasive naturalism, um, scientism of the culture. But I would say that if methodological naturalism even is part of the definition of science, then it has a very um, odd effect. And here I would agree with various atheist philosophers of science who've made this observation. Supposing that Christianity claimed that the true explanation of X, fill in the gap as you like, is a miracle. But science claims that the explanation of X is uh, wholly naturalistic. We can explain X without appeal to a miracle. Well, supposing that to be the case, they would not be contradicting each other. Those are not contradictory claims, because by definition, science isn't concerned with knowing the truth under a methodologically naturalistic definition. This is uh, atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton who makes this point. He says, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic or, or are compatible with metaphysical naturalism being true. Science is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism, he says, because we want science to be a no-hold-barred uh, search for the truth about the world. So, approaching our definition of science and giving some warnings about what not to define it as, I would say science should not be co confused with scientism, as many students will, and indeed I think science should not be defined as methodologically naturalistic. And in that, I'm you know, in happy company of atheists like Bradley Monton or uh, indeed Michael Ruse or Thomas Nagel, I think, as well. So here's a, a stab at a definition of science, uh, or at least the natural sciences, shall we say. Science is a first-order discipline involving systematic inquiry, the primary aim of which is to know as much as we can about physical reality. And by know, we mean to understand, to explain, and or predict. Let me just highlight a few elements of that definition. It's a first-order discipline. But I mean, questions about, about the nature of science, for example, are not first-order questions of science, but second-order philosophical questions about science. 
and say, what is science? What should its uh, relationship be to theology or whatever? Those are not scientific questions. Those are second-order questions about science. And it's not for the scientist, qua scientist, to answer those questions. It's for the philosopher of science to answer those questions. It's focused on physical reality, understanding it, but that is not to define it in methodologically naturalistic terms. It's just saying the thing that we're trying to understand and explain is the physical world within the natural sciences. First order scientific knowledge of that physical reality doesn't indeed can't exclude philosophical knowledge, say, of non-physical realities. So you can't uh, conflate science with naturalism, let alone methodological naturalism. In other words, science is neither um, epistemologically nor ontologically omnicompetent, um, which I then have to explain, because it's like philosophers, we know we do this, we love long words that mean simple things, don't we? Um, you know, how we know stuff, what there is, um, being competent at everything. Okay? Uh, science is not the only way to know anything about uh, all there is, uh, and it's not the be-all and end-all of academic study of reality. It doesn't even encompass every know, way of knowing or everything about which we could know. It just encompasses some ways of knowing about some things. Well, that's one half of the equation, if you like. What about what is Christianity? Uh, again, controversial territory, perhaps. Um, let me take Acts 2, 20, uh, 37, where um, this is the response of uh, the uh, crowds at, at Pentecost. And when the people heard this, the, the preaching of the gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And this ties in with research that I've been doing recently about the nature of spirituality. Um, you'll notice here that we have some beliefs. They heard the proclamation uh, that they're saying what had happened about Jesus, what the gospel was. Um, they were cut to the heart. They had an attitudinal response to this set of beliefs that they'd been given. And the combination of the beliefs that they had adopted and their attitudes towards them led them to behaving in a particular way. What should we do? We have beliefs, attitudes, or actions, or perhaps more memorably, your head, your heart, and your hands. That is your spirituality. A way of relating to reality, yourself, each other, the world around us, and ultimate reality, via your worldview beliefs, your attitudes, and your behavior, your head, your heart, your hands. And of course, Jesus taught that true spirituality, because different spiritualities will fill out those categories in different ways, true spirituality is to love God with all of your head and your heart and your strength. And how do you do that properly? Well, you have to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus himself. I am the gate. So you enter into a, a loving, forgiven relationship with God uh, through Jesus, and in that relationship... Yeah, you are called to be a disciple, to develop your loving of God with all of your head and your heart and your hands, which will then, of course, overflow into loving your neighbour as yourself. So we get this sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop within any spirituality, uh, including Christian spirituality. 
just the references to why Jesus puts himself at the centre. Not just the message that he gave, but himself as a a person at the centre of that definition of Christianity. So, having done a bit of preparatory work, we can at least begin to address, uh, in a little bit more of a systematic way, this question of, is Christianity unscientific, and why should you worry if it is? In the modern sense of the term, for something to be unscientific would merely be for it to be something besides a first-order discipline, the primary goal of which is to know as much as we can about physical reality. Okay? Well, in that sense, of course, Christianity isn't science, and in that sense, Christianity is unscientific. But so what? Is that meant to be a critique? I mean, philosophy, in that sense, is unscientific. So is art or jam. Um, you know, but those are great things. <laughs> I, I'm really pleased that there's art and jam and philosophy. So what's, what's the critique? In other words, if, if this accusation in the rhetoric of being unscientific is to carry any weight, we really need to understand that what's being said is not merely that Christianity is unscientific, but that it is in some sense anti-scientific. That whole thing that Harris was saying about repudiating the scientific worldview and so on. Why should you be worried that a Christian is running the NIH, etc.? So we disambiguate the concepts of being unscientific from the concept of being anti-scientific. Being anti-scientific means being in active opposition to some essential element of science. Being in active opposition to some essential element of science. And that's going to have various consequences uh, for the debate about science and religion. For example, disagreeing with scientific theory X, again, fill in the blank uh, as you like, disagreeing with scientific theory X doesn't make one anti scientific. Theories, after all, can be scientific without being true, and scientists do disagree about things quite a lot of the time. That's part of the process of science. So merely the fact that you disagree with a particular scientific theory doesn't of itself necessarily entail that you're anti-scientific. Adopting an anti-scientific position may, of course, lead you to reject scientific theory X. But the fact that someone rejects scientific theory X doesn't prove that they have an anti-scientific position. That just doesn't follow the consequent there, of course. Rather, being anti-scientific means being committed to a position, be that a belief or an attitude or an action, in spirituality terms, that's in tension with something that unifies the participants in the scientific project when they have scientific disagreements. So what's objectionable about rejecting a scientific theory for anti-scientific reasons isn't the rejection of the scientific theory. You could do that without being anti-scientific. Rather, it's the fact that one flouts, and we could put it like this, that you flout an epistemic virtue that's bound up in the wise practice of rationality and thus of science per se. As Stuart Hackett uh, says, uh, science 
in this narrower sense, can't function without employing the universal criteria of knowledge, since we're not buying into scientism. We're really talking about flouting generally applicable epistemic virtues. The charge of being unscientific, therefore, boils down to the charge that one is being irrational. So note how Harris, in the quote we started from, he slid from calling Collins's faith in principle unscientific to calling it utterly irrational. Those for him are, are, are synonymous. That one is flouting or rejecting one or more epistemic virtues, and that's the problem. And of course, if that's what having a particular religious viewpoint meant, then I think we would want to be concerned about having that particular religious viewpoint as well. So one's only options for rebutting such a charge, if the charge actually is, you are flouting an epistemic virtue, you're being irrational by being a Christian, are as follows. You could, first of all, you could try and show that one isn't flouting or rejecting the relevant purported epistemic virtue in the particular case study that's, that's uh, being looked at. Or, secondly, you could show that the, the relevant purported epistemic virtue should be limited in some way, should be qualified or perhaps overridden uh, by some other virtue or virtues uh, in such a way that actually it isn't flouted by one's position. That when you understand one's position, you see that the accusation that you're flouting a relevant epistemic virtue is in fact not true. By this qualifying or overriding of other relevant positions. Or third, you could show that the relevant purported epistemic virtue should actually be rejected. And actually disagree with the, the principle that, that, that grounds the critique, as it were. Those seem to be the, the logically possible responses to the critique. So, for example, Occam's razor often gets talked about uh, in this field, and there is William of Occam having used his razor. <laughs> ah, thank you. <laughs> um, so we might have an objection that goes along these lines. Look, naturalism is simpler as, than theism. It's a much simpler view of reality. We only appeal to one kind of explanatory entity in naturalism, whereas you theists appeal to multiple kinds of explanatory en entities. Well, the rebuttal here would be to say, OK, look, the virtue of simplicity, yes, that is an epistemic virtue, appealing to simplicity in our explanations, but the virtue of that simplicity is limited or overridden by the greater virtue of explanatory adequacy. That is more important element of Occam's razor than the simplicity element of Occam's razor. So, I might suggest that the Christian should grant the unscientific status of Christianity whilst assigning critics like Harris the burden of justifying assertions about Christianity being anti-scientific. We want, okay, to nail them down on particulars. Um, critics, I think, must demonstrate that Christianity necessarily flouts a genuine epistemic obligation qua being a Christian. You've got to demonstrate that Christians 
flout a genuine epistemic obligation qua being a Christian. In other words, we can take any critique of the Harris kind and sort of pose some questions back to it and say, look, does being a Christian really require one to reject this supposedly essential epistemic virtue? And that's notwithstanding the actual beliefs and attitudes and actions of Christian individuals or institutions. Because it's not particularly interesting to be told um, there are particular ways of being a Christian that would be irrational. Other than to say, well, don't be that kind of Christian then. You know? um, what the, the Harrises of the world need is for this to be a general critique of, of being any type of of Christian in the general in the in the true sense of the term. And secondly we can ask, well is is this accusation that's being made, is it grounded in a sound, uh, a properly formulated, properly ranked epistemic virtue that is essential to the scientific project? Because if not, um, this critique just has no purchase. We want to make sure we're not merely looking at a disagreement about particular scientific theories and so on and get to this level of, well, are we being rational in terms of rejecting something essential to the scientific project, as it were? So question one relates to option um, A there. And uh, question two relates to options B and C. So the burden of proof, I would suggest, rests with the critic to establish that both criteria are fully satisfied if their objection is going to carry uh, any weight with us. So let's look at a couple of just quick kind of case studies, as it were, um, different uh, critiques, and with this kind of um, background formulation of the, the issues in mind, how one might respond to them. So here's a, a quote from the new atheist uh, physicist Victor Stenger. And he says, faith means having, quote, belief in the absence of supported evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. That's what having faith means. You don't want to do that because that's irrational. You're flouting a genuine epistemic virtue if you have faith. And of course, you can't be a Christian without having faith. That's rather central to the whole thing, isn't it? Rebuttal. Yeah, whilst science repudiates blind faith, in the teeth of at least sufficient contrary evidence, so does Christianity. Um, in other words, the, the objection fails to pass criteria uh, one. Being a Christian doesn't actually require you to flout that epistemic virtue of not having blind faith. Because when you add the term blind to the word faith, it's not a redundant qualifier. Um, there can be faith that's not blind faith. Or objection uh, from Sam Harris's quote, Christianity repudiates the scientific worldview in rejecting metaphysical naturalism. Well, yes, whilst being a Christian does entail rejecting naturalism, a commitment to naturalism isn't an essential element of science because scientism is wrong and we don't want to conflate these things. So the objection fails because it fails to satisfy criteria two. So one would hope, as a Christian, of course, that any critique, critique of this kind is going to fail 
to carry its burden of proof with respect to one or other of the criteria, or maybe both of them. Take a, a little look at what we could call overlapping interests, because some put forward this view, of course, of science and religion in general, Christianity in particular, are kind of these um, hermetically sealed compartments, never the twain shall meet. They just deal with different things, you know. Um, Stephen Jay Gould famously sort of said, you know, science tells us about the way reality is, tells us about the facts of the matter, and religion is, is all about sort of fuzzy, fuzzy feelings of warmth and hope and, and meaning in life and so on, and, and you know. Um, so they're about different things, so they don't conflict with each other, um, but that's because science is telling us the truth about reality and religion is sort of giving us nice feelings. Um, another way I'd want to divide things up. Actually, I think there are overlapping interests between science and Christianity. The fact that Christianity is unscientific in that modern sense of the term we looked at doesn't mean that it's got nothing to do with science, as if they were these hermetically sealed things. And you could say the same, of course, with philosophy and art and jam. Um, Thomas Aquinas, who I mentioned a little earlier, who's also been using Occam's razor, <laughs> uh, it calls theology the queen of the sciences the, the ultimate integrating discipline of the university um, assisted by her handmaiden philosophy um, the area we now call science was of course natural philosophy um, I, I still prefer that way of referring to it it's a, a good way of irking scientists if you come across them as well oh you're a natural philosopher yes <laughs> Taking back to our, our, our sort of grid of spirituality, uh, Christianity and science have overlapping interests in faith's attitudes, the attitudes of our hearts towards, towards things, the commitments that we make, and not just our um, feeling responses, but our, our choice responses as well. Um, for example, we, we have overlapping interests in the nature of community, Science is a communal project, a worldwide spanning communal uh, undertaking. Um, you know, you have uh, everything from your lab or your paper writing partners all the way through to the, everyone who reads and contributes to the journal in your area, etc., etc. Attitudes come into epistemology, particularly if you're thinking in terms of sort of virtue um, theory, epistemology, and so on. Or actions, how we actually do things in the world. Um, particularly in the area of ethics, of course, the ethics of particular re research uh, methodologies uh, in technology and its influence upon society and people and how we use our knowledge of reality to give power over reality, at least to some sets of people within society. Um, environmental concerns and so on. These should be overlapping areas of interest between science and Christianity. Um, so there are overlapping areas of interest in terms of the, the, the hands and the heart as well as the, the head um, in terms of knowing the truth about empirical reality. Of course, that's not all that Christianity is interested in. Um, but it is interested in it. Christianity is a historical religion. It does make certain truth claims about the nature of reality. Um, those may be more or less expansive depending upon your interpretation of certain biblical passages um, but at the very least you know um, as a historical religion the science of, of archaeology would be interested in certain things um, that Christianity is uh, interested in as well 
uh, or perhaps uh, the claim that the, 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 the cosmos had a beginning would be an overlapping area of interest between theology um, and uh, cosmology. As uh, J.P. Morland from the States says, Christianity claims to be a knowledge tradition. It's not all that it is. It's our whole selves, as we saw in that diagram of spirituality. But that's, uh, it is no less than that, at least. It's, uh, it places knowledge, not merely truth, at the center of proclamation and discipleship. Talks by the way in which the, the Old and New Testaments, including the teachings of Jesus, claim not merely that Christianity is true, but that a variety of its moral and religious assertions can be known to be true. Uh, not known indubitably, necessarily, but known. Which is completely the opposite of the impression that the New Atheists have been so successful in purveying to culture. Um, we looked at this critique from Stenger already a little bit, but you know, Dawkins, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even the teeth of evidence. A.C. Grayling, philosopher at Oxford University, faith is a commitment to believe contrary to evidence and reason. That's just what it means. You know, people don't even consult dictionaries these days, um, but that just pervades uh, the culture. I like answering this with a quote from C.S. Lewis, just to give a quick plug to my new book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, um, where he defines faith as the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods, uh, and contrasts uh, not faith and reason, but but, uh, faith uh, on the basis of of being reasonable against, say, temptations uh, not to continue having that reasonable trust temptations from sloth or or, um, greed or lust or whatever. Seems like new atheists just have no cognizance of passages like 1 Peter 3.15, the famous apologist's text verse, always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia, a reasoned defense to everyone who asks, etc. And again, here, once you have this uh, structure of spirituality in mind, you start noticing that uh, it crops up everywhere. So be prepared to give. It's something you've got to do. Um, to give an answer, an apologia, a, a, a rational defence. And how have you got to do it? You've got to do it with, uh, because of your hope and with gentleness and respect, which are all about the attitudes that you take, both towards God and towards the people who are asking you to justify yourself. Um, you could split it down also in biblical terms to uh, works and faith saying faith is the combination of belief and attitude, that we could make the the traditional philosophical distinction between belief in something and belief that something. You know, it's one thing to believe that the chair will probably support my weight. It's quite another thing to sit on the chair. Uh, or um, the traditional image of the, the bridge across the gorge. Yes, I believe, uh, I've done my, uh, my mechanics calculations and so on, I believe that that rope bridge should take the truck. Um, does that mean that I'm not, when I'm approaching the bridge in my truck, going, that's a heck of a drop, going to go, go on then. You know, I still have to take an attitudinal, volitional um, aspect to my belief, which is about belief in 
and, uh, and not merely about the, the sort of abstract, merely intellectual belief that. In other words, I think that the best modern translation for faith is trust. Um, all of the standard uh, epistemic virtues that would attach to belief that uh, do not simply get sort of chucked out and left by the wayside because you're combining it with belief in. Um, that would be uh, completely uh, unnecessary. And of course, everyone, including scientists, exercise trust. And they don't exercise that trust in an irrational manner, necessarily. They exercise a rationally grounded trust on a daily basis. And they exercise a rationally grounded trust on a daily basis to do their work as scientists. You have to trust that people are um, accurately reporting the results of their experiments when they publish it in the paper and not defrauding you, as sometimes they do, and so on. So far from seeing any grounds for uh, any kind of strong critique saying Christianity is unscientific or indeed anti-scientific, that there's a, a contradiction between the two, not only is there a coherence, I would argue, but uh, given the overlapping interests of Christianity and science, I would actually want to argue for a, uh, at least a parcel consonance between the two, not, not merely a lack of contradiction, but a mutually supporting relationship. In, in each of the instances where science and Christianity have an overlapping interest in the nature of reality, you can ask, of course, are these differing uh, perspectives, as it were, incompatible, apparently, or compatible? If it's apparently incompatibility is there, is that because science or because Christian theology, or because both are wrong in this instance. Uh, maybe the particular scientific theory is wrong, but maybe the particular theological theory or interpretation is wrong, or maybe they're both wrong. And uh, I would also say with, with a good point that Alvin Plantinga, I think, makes, is that if, if there's an apparent contradiction between theology and science, one shouldn't automatically assume that it's science that's going to triumph, is going to be the trump card in the debate between the two. Um, if there's an apparent conflict, maybe the, the, the rational warrant of the theological position is stronger than the rational warrant of the particular scientific position. Because remember, saying you know, that scientific theory is wrong is not being anti-scientific. Uh, indeed, you need to be able to say that sometimes in order to be scientific uh, and make progress in science. Uh, and since we have these overlapping interests between these two disciplines, and since Christianity is not less than a knowledge tradition... In any case of apparent conflict, one does, of course, have to do, sort of play the weighing up the reasons one against the other. Um, so one or other or both might uh, be wrong. But if there's no apparent incompatibility, there is at least an apparent compatibility. But there again, we might divide that into mere coherence, as it were, a lack of conflict, you know, um, 
there doesn't seem to be any apparent conflict between um, the doctrine of the Trinity and um, um, the chemistry of um, rusting. I don't see any conflict between those. Um, But is that a mere coherence between these uh, truth claims and knowledge traditions? Or is there, perhaps at least on occasion, a a consonance, the presence of support, whether that's mutual or uh, in either direction uh, between the subjects, as it were? Um, So uh, this is sort of, again, you can see a way in which this talk is is, is throwing out quite a lot of sort of little tidbits to the audience, because I'm expecting particular comebacks from the kind of audiences that I normally do this with, but just some quotes about this, this idea of the historic warfare between science and religion having been debunked by recent work uh, in the history of science. Uh, when we get on to the question of how do we explain science itself, I think there we have our best grounds for arguing for a consonance uh, between Christianity and science. And here's a, a fascinating, quite long, but I think very fascinating quote from Dr. Paul Davis, who's uh, quite a well-known public uh, writer, theoretical physicist, and an agnostic. But he says this. He says, The worldview of a scientist, even the most atheistic scientist, is that essentially of monotheism. It is a belief which is accepted as an article of faith, that the universe is ordered in an intelligible way. Now, you couldn't be a scientist if you didn't believe these two things. If you didn't think there was an underlying order in nature, you wouldn't bother to do it, to do science, because there's nothing to be found. And if you didn't believe it was intelligible, that you could find it, you'd give up, because there's no point if human beings can't come to understand it. But scientists do, as a matter of faith, accept that the universe is ordered and at least partially intelligible to human beings. And that's what underpins the entire scientific enterprise. And Paul Davis, as an agnostic, says, and that is a theological position. It's absolutely clear when you look at history that it comes from a theological worldview. And it's very, very significant that in historical terms that's where it comes from and that scientists unshakably today retain that world view as an act of faith. And scientists just take this for granted for the most part, but I think it's a really important point that needs to be made. Um, What a fascinating quote to get from a a working agnostic uh, scientist. I think there are various philosophical presuppositions of science, and pointing these out is of course one of the ways of undermining scientism, various philosophical presuppositions of science that are actually warranted by at least some general form of theism um, so that one needn't hold these presuppositions of science that Davis was pointing towards as an act of blind faith but that actually combining science with theism means that the scientific enterprise becomes something that is a a rationally warranted exercise. Um, Some of these Davis has mentioned, others are not. Maybe the the assumption that the natural world exhibits a rational order, that the human mind to some degree is able to understand that rational order, that human cognitive and uh, sensory faculties are at least generally 
reliable more often than not. That the rational order displayed by the natural world can't be just deduced from first principles, like you know, Aristotle kind of sitting in his armchair thinking, how must planets go? Um, they must go in circles, mustn't they, obviously, because circles are the perfect shape. So that's how planets must go. Rather, as the founders of the scientific enterprise did, they said, okay, however planets go, there must be a rational structure to it that we can understand. But God, who created the universe, has free will, so maybe he had a range of rational options, and we can't just dictate from first principles which of those he chose with his free will, so perhaps we better get a telescope and go and point it at a planet and see what it actually does. Oh, look, it goes in an elliptical orbit. Okay? Um, that there are knowable objective values, truth, goodness, beauty. You should be honest in your research. Uh, beauty, uh, as a very um, significant uh, epistemic virtue, um, particularly within um, various sort of cosmological quantum theory and kind of thing, you often get physicists appealing to the beauty of the mathematics of a particular theory as a point uh, in its favor, interestingly. Uh, that the natural world is not itself divine. So when you're chopping up the frog to understand how it works, you're not dissecting God. You know, you're not meddling in things that man was not meant to know. This kind of phrase from the 50s movies, you know. That actually, no, we are meant to, according to the creation story, you know, we are meant to study and understand and know in order to better look after and steward the world. Um, it's given to us by God, created by God, um, but it is not God. Um, maybe the assumption that the natural world isn't governed by multiple competing and or comp- capricious forces, as various polytheistic views would say. Um, if they're capricious, there's no order there to, to, for us to understand. Um, if they're competing uh, with one another... There's no underlying unified order. Rather, there's, there's these sort of uh, differing camps and sides uh, to nature. So these might be some of the kind of presuppositions of science that can be warranted by a monotheistic view of reality rather than taking these as, as acts of blind faith, as Paul Davis says scientists do. One last interesting quote, this is from Steve Fuller, uh, from a few years ago now. Steve Fuller is a very uh, interesting uh, academic in the UK. He's a a sociologist of science. Uh, He's sort of very influential within the whole discipline of the sociology of science, the sociology of knowledge. And he says this, he says, While I cannot honestly say that I believe in a divine personal creator... No plausible alternative has yet been offered to justify the pursuit of science as a search for the ultimate uh, ultimate systematic understanding of reality. Uh, Atheism as a positive doctrine has done precious little for science. It was quite the reverse view to the view that many undergraduate and A-level students that I meet uh, will hold. He goes on and says, science makes sense only if there's an overall design to nature that we are especially well-equipped to fathom, even though most of it has little bearing on our day-to-day animal survival. And, of course, we could get uh, sidetracked here into the whole uh, fascinating debate about the argument from reason and uh, Alvin Plantinga's uh, evolutionary anti-naturalism argument and all the way back through C.S. Lewis and his forebears and so on. 
humanity's creation in the image of God, says Fuller, provides the clearest historical rationale for the rather specialised expenditure of effort associated with science. This is a charming medieval painting of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with God. And of course, some Christians take this more literally than others, but all Christians agree with with some of the theological, metaphysical points that this story tells us. Not only is there a rational God with free will who created a universe which therefore reflects both his creative freedom and his rationality, and indeed, I would want to say his beauty, and, and so on, but that God within Christianity is thought to have created humanity, male and female, in his image. That image is, of course, not physical, but spiritual, and is primarily related to the things that that make us persons in relationship with each other, with the creation, with God, in our whole selves, our spirituality, in our head, our hearts, and our hands. And that means that uh, we not only expect to be able to understand something of the nature of God, we can't expect to comprehend our creator, but we can expect reasonably to understand something, to know something of him, but also that when we turn our attention to the world that he's created, we can expect to understand something of the rationality that's out there. Because the way we think about things in here, as it were, and the way things are out there both come from the same self-consistent source. They come from the same place, so we expect them a priori to fit together. And that is the kind of view of reality that sparked the scientific revolution um, that agnostics like Paul Davis and uh, Fuller still point to as at least a rational grounding for what is otherwise an act of blind faith in doing science. So that actually there is a, a consonance between at least a theistic view of reality and science, that, uh, that theism justifies science, um, far being, from it being the case that science justifies atheism. It is theism that justifies science. Uh, and so that makes it rather hard to use science as a stick with which to beat theism. <laughs> So is Christianity unscientific? Well, yes, in that Christianity isn't science. But so what? Uh, No, in that Christianity is not demonstrably anti-science. No, in that science isn't epistemologically or ontologically omnicompetent. Uh, No, in that Christianity is a knowledge tradition. Uh, No, in that Christianity helped give birth to science. No, in that theism provides metaphysical warrant for the scientific project. And then I open it up to audience Q&A, as we will do now. Um, And I expect I'll have somewhat different questions than I do with a student audience. Um, But there we go. (laughs) Okay, let's start at the front and work our way back. And I'm just going to retrieve my drink. My question is uh, just a technical one. Do you have the, the source of Paul Davis's quotation? Because uh, Paul Davis's quotation. Yes. Oh gosh, it's on a DVD. 
it's a, D, it's a DVD extra on, I think it's an extra on the Discovery Institute DVD of Unlocking the Mystery of Life, or one of those early uh, um, Discovery Institute DVDs about intelligent design theory, and he's, he's, he's in there as one of the talking heads, and there are some extra bits that didn't make it into the film, and it's one of those. Yeah, it's it's not in a in a book. Um, the particular quotation I'm being reminded to say that back for the purpose of the tape, uh, a source for the quotation from Paul Davis that we looked at, and um, that was what I was answering. Thank you for the reminder. I'll try and repeat. Yeah. Um, so just looking at your quote, uh, your uh, definition of being anti-scientific, mm. and thinking about. Um, it would seem to me like there is a particular theological theory that could be called anti-scientific, which would be uh, the use of the Bible in order to come to knowledge about physical reality. And so a scientist would want to say that's flouting and rejecting the epistemic virtue of science, which is that we don't find out about physical reality from an ancient book written long ago, but we find out about reality by observing it and going and looking at it. Um, right. So my question, I guess, would be um, how would you deal with that charge of being anti-scientific in that um, Christians want to use the Bible, mm. or some Christians yeah. want to use the Bible as a source of scientific uh, authority, whereas they would want to say that's not how we do it. Okay, so how would one respond to the critique that might be levelled? Uh, Christians, or at least some types of Christians, want to get uh, use the Bible as a source of knowledge about the physical universe, um, and you might want to pin them down on a particular instance of this to focus the discussion, what would the response be? Um, well, back to the criteria I was giving, say, um, would Christians who do that necessarily be flouting a genuine epistemic virtue? And the critic, as you put it, was something along the lines of, you know, um, the virtue is you shouldn't get, try and get your knowledge of the way that the physical world is through reading an old book, and it, because it's an ancient text. Um, therefore, it's uh, not a wise uh, or way of going about knowing about the physical world. Okay. Well, that begs a whole lot of questions, doesn't it, about you know, uh, the fact that we actually do get most of our scientific knowledge through reading the testimony of other people, reporting their experimental results and theories and so on. How old does a book have to be before it falls under this supposed epistemic virtue of being too old to be reliable? So, well, that doesn't actually seem to be the fundamental epistemic virtue either. Why should it be considered non-virtuous to get your knowledge about physical reality from reading what's in an old book? What's going on there is, is probably some sort of assumption about um, because you're getting information about physical reality from people who didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, okay. Um, well, which bits of physical reality, and that begs the whole question about, well, did they know what they were talking about or not? So, for example, if a prophet uh, writes down in a book um, something that implies that the universe had a beginning, okay, and you say, well, I think the universe had a beginning, because it says so here in Genesis, you know. Um, and they say, well, that's not a reliable source of information. And they say, well, that depends upon whether or not this really was a prophet of God. If he really was a prophet of God, and, and I've correctly interpreted what he was saying, and he really did say something that implies this, then isn't that a pretty good source of knowledge about physical reality? Because ultimately the source of knowledge there is God who made the physical reality. So that the whole sort of 
underlying assumption of the critique, to me, would really seem to be the assumption there isn't a God, or at least not a God who could reliably reveal himself to people in a way that could give us any reliable knowledge about anything in the physical world. Well, it just seems to me that 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 assumption is highly open to debate and question. Um, So I would actually, the response really is, I don't think people would necessarily be flouting a genuine epistemic virtue in behaving in that way, necessarily. It would have to depend upon the particular merits of the particular case. Um, But you can't, you know, it's far too sort of shallow a critique, as it were, just to say... um, you shouldn't get your knowledge about the physical world from reading old books. <laughs> yeah. I guess the, the real problem with that kind of uh, question comes when uh, someone says that you can't rely on the Bible when they are talking about biology or physics or something, when the Bible are directly contradicting observation or scientific mm theories with, with a very wide <coughs> acceptance. And that's, that's the kind of question you get. Yeah, sure. Especially when they have to do with uh, young earth creationism or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and as I said, in, in any case of apparent contradiction between a claim coming from a theological source and from a scientific subject source, um, it's still open to have the debate about, well, who which of these sources of knowledge is the more warranted in this particular instance, and not to simply make the assumption that it must be the scientific source that's going to win in, in that sort of uh, debate, as it were. But also, one could then retreat, as it were, to the other position of saying, do I necessarily have to hold that particular theological interpretation that's in conflict with what the majority of scientists are saying on the subject, in order to be a Christian? And I would say no. Um, indeed, I think even if young earth creationism were the true position, let's say for the sake of argument, one could still say, but I don't think one has to believe that in order to be a Christian. Uh, and, and, and obviously there are Christians who have other interpretations, and obviously, if you uh, were you know, seriously considering, should I be a Christian or not, I would not want to say to you, well, you've got to be the kind of Christian um, you know, X, you could be kind of Christian Y or Q or Z or whatever. There's, you know, oh, it's not the most fundamental issue. The key issues are, you know, is there a God, was Jesus, who Christians think he was? Get those kind of issues sorted out first. And maybe other things will then pan out later. Maybe you can be a Christian whilst being completely agnostic about Issues about which is the correct interpretation theologically, which is the best creation model, as long as you believe in the doctrine of creation. Yeah, follow up. Small other question. Uh, you quoted uh, Bradley Mon yes. of the methodological naturalism. Mm. And I understand from the quotation that he doesn't want that, mm. he wants an alternative. It would be interesting knowing what kind of alternative is he proposing and how would you as a Christian respond to that? Okay, so this is a question referring to the quote I had from Bradley Monton, the atheist philosopher of science who wants to reject methodological naturalism as as constitutive of the definition of science. Um, What does he want to replace that with? 
Well, in, in a sense, what he wants to do is just, just abstract that from the definition of science. To say, well, that's not part of the definition of science. Whatever science is, it shouldn't be that methodological naturalism is part of the definition. Okay? And I, I gave a definition of science that didn't have methodological naturalism in it. Um, I don't know whether Monton would agree with that particular definition, but as long as it didn't include methodological naturalism, that would, you know, that would be the main thing so far as that point goes. Um, I think you could follow a, a route more like um, Willard Quine, for example, who, um, I, I'm not going to quote this exactly, but famously said something along the lines of, if, if I saw an explanatory benefit to positing a non-physical reality, um, including an up to a, a god, then I would gladly do that. Uh, and the criteria for him was, um, is there an explanatory benefit to including something supernatural within our understanding and explanation of reality? And that, of course, is consistent with holding um, non-dogmatically to a naturalistic worldview. It's just that you're saying, I'm not going to let that overrule where the evidence of observation and so on might point me if there's sufficient explanatory benefit to abandoning my, my tentative naturalistic position. So it's, it's like holding naturalism as a hypothesis rather than as a, a fundamental presupposition that's built into the very process of doing science. Um, I've in a couple of places made a distinction between hardline methodological naturalism and soft methodological naturalism, uh, which I think is quite fruitful. And it goes like this. Hardline methodological naturalism would say, um, don't include reference in your scientific explanations to intelligence. You must only explain things in terms of, say, natural causes, natural laws, with reference to natural law or whatever. The problem with that hardline methodological naturalism is it means that forensic science is not science, that archaeology is not science. Um, you know, that, that the, that the, that when we've got the body on the slab in, in the forensic science lab with a knife in its back, <laughs> uh, and you know, we're, we're saying to each other, I, I wonder what the correct uh, explanation uh, for this death is. Um, we're, we're not allowed, the one thing we're not allowed to say is it was murder, you know. <laughs> uh, well, that, that just seems, you know, that seems wrong-headed. So let's retreat to what we might call a soft methodological naturalism, which says we must never explicitly appeal to a supernatural intelligence in explaining things within the natural world. But of course, there's a sense in which that... that kind of soft method methodological naturalism would be completely consistent with, say, being an intelligent design theorist, which is someone who would say, there's evidence of genuine intelligence being involved in certain aspects of reality, but, of course, science, that's, that's scientific to say that, but it's, it, it's going beyond science to say what the nature of that intelligence is. And I think, again, you can see, you know, in the forensics lab or the archaeology workbench or whatever, um, do we have to resolve issues about whether mind-body dualism is true or not, for example, before we can attribute the mur you know, it to murder or the, the stone to, to carving and say it's an arrowhead that was produced by an intelligence? 
Um, do we have to resolve the question of was that intelligence naturalistically explicable or is it fundamentally supernatural in the way we need to explain it? Well, we think we can do science without resolving that dispute. Why not think we can do science collaboratively without resolving disputes about whether or not there's a supernatural intelligence? But at least if we, if we allow ourselves intelligence in our sort of plethora of possible explanations, rather than ruling it off the table a priori, we let the evidence speak for itself. We can agree, even as you know, um, an intelligent design theorist and a, and a Buddhist and an agnostic and an atheist could all agree, yes, there's signs of intelligence here in um, the bacterial flagellum or whatever. And then um, let's go to the pub and have a good old debate about which the best metaphysical interpretation of that is. Just as the, just as, um, the archaeologists can go down the pub and have an argument about mind-body dualism or you know, materialism or whatever. Um, so it would still be correct to mention intelligence if that is the explanation of something, say. It would be true to mention it. Just you're failing to go into the further issue of the nature of the intelligence, um, which you then you draw the dividing line there. But that seems a much more sensible place of drawing the dividing line to allow intelligence in, whatever its nature, rather than to rule it out, uh, and then end up saying, oh gosh, we need to transfer loads of money from the science department to the philosophy department so that we can keep doing forensics and cryptology and <laughs> the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and archaeology and, and so on, because by definition that's not science to mention intelligence when you explain stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, my time is up, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your, your questions and come and touch me afterwards if you want.